Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're joined by laryngologist Dr. Greg Dion to discuss laryngeal trauma. Uh, Dr. Dion, thank you for being here today. Dr. Marinelli, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So just to start this episode off, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how common laryngeal trauma is and, and how does it manifest? Just because I don't see it all that often and so I just want to start with that. Yeah, absolutely. So laryngeal trauma obviously is not the most common, thankfully, trauma we see. And albeit rare, it can be very life-threatening. So it's important to, to understand how it can happen. So traditionally, we think of it as uh, this in the setting of multi-trauma, so motor vehicle collisions with multi-injuries. But you know, there are other ways you can have this. For example, a great way that people can get a laryngeal trauma is a lacrosse ball to the neck. So so unlike hockey players who have a special neck guard, a uh, lacrosse helmet comes down and doesn't cover the neck. So if your neck is extended when the ball comes, you can take a shot right there to the neck and cause a, uh, an injury. So you can see it in ways like that. And then other, other places where your neck is extended. So for example, say you're pushing a car in ice to help someone out um, and you slip on the ice and you extend your head and hit your neck on the bumper. I've seen that result in laryngeal trauma. So, so those are the general kinds of injuries that might precipitate a laryngeal trauma injury. And symptomatically, how do patients typically present? Yeah. So there's a couple of things you, you might see. A lot of this depends on the overall setting in which the trauma occurred. But, you know, if the patient comes in, they'll frequently be hoarse or dysphonic. So that might be a raspy voice or a really breathy voice. You might notice some crepitus that they uh, may actually have some difficulty breathing, some strider. They may come in with less particular complaints, right? They could have uh, like a cough or trouble swallowing. Um, all, all of this can can be related. Some of the things you might feel would be tenderness to the neck. There might be some evidence of an underlying uh, expanding hematoma. You might cough up some, some blood or have a lot of tenderness to the region just above the clavicles. And how does age play into this? Yeah, so this is really fascinating. Um, it, it turns out that the younger you are, the less likely you are to suffer a laryngeal trauma. And that's for two reasons. So in the very young, um, the very young age, you'll notice that the larynx actually sits higher in the neck as compared to an adult. So just by the orientation of the anatomy, um, young children and infants are generally protected from laryngeal trauma just by the location of the larynx in the neck much, much higher. You know, as we age, that that drops down, and so your adolescent and young adult larynx is still pretty elastic, and the cartilage um, has a lot of give and, and play to it. Remember that that unlike a lot of a lot of other bony structures, the larynx is kind of freestanding and hanging, supported above and below uh, by the trachea and, and supraglottic structures in the, in the neck. And so, uh, as you age, of course, that that calcifies. And that calcification makes it more rigid and more more likely to fracture. So you generally see these uh, traumas that are that are non-penetrating uh, or non-severe in, in older people who who have had an injury. And moving on to pathophysiology, I know the breadth of this topic it encompasses a lot of different types of injuries and whatnot. But could you give a brief overview of just the different different types of injuries and kind of pathophysiologically what is going on here? Yeah, there are, there are quite a few structures that can be injured um, in, in a laryngeal trauma. And I think that will also kind of represent itself in, in how those, those symptoms manifest to a patient presenting. Um, so some of the things that might happen, 
uh, you, you might have a nerve injury. So that would include your recurrent laryngeal nerve, and, and that might be injured um, from a, a number of reasons. You may have a stab to the neck, so a machete injury um, could sever a nerve. Um, that, that's not optimal, and you'd have motion abnormalities because of that. If you end up with a superior laryngeal nerve injury, then, then you may have dysphagia or, or pitch um, restriction in the patient's voice, and they may complain of inability to raise or lower their pitch, and um, that, that might be one of your initial findings. You might also end up with compression. So if there's a hematoma or edema or swelling, that might compress the nerve, and then that compression would result in an equivocal nerve injury where you might have motion unilateral or bilateral abnormalities. In some fractures, especially open fractures of the larynx, you, you could have endolaryngeal injuries, right? So if your framework is disrupted, you, that might transition and translate all the way through to the airway with disruption of the mucosa, or you may have submucosal hematomas or edema. Um, depend, depending upon the, the type of injury, um, one, one way to look at it is you know, someone who hits their steering wheel with their, with their neck extended could have a arytenoid cartilage subluxation or dislocation, and that might present as a, as a, as a fixed cord. So that type of injury could cause a subluxation or, or um, dislocation. You could injure the cricorytenoid joint with or without damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Your hyoid bone just above your larynx could end up um, being fractured in kind of a hangman's fracture type clothesline injury. Or you might even have a cricoid fracture, um, and, that, and that's important to recognize because of its increased risk of uh, airway compromise. And then, and then as things, you know, kind of progressing around the, the severity, you could end up with a cricotracheal separation, basically where um, if, if unrecognized, you, you put yourself at a real airway risk in terms of the trachea retreating into the uh, chest um, and it becoming problematic to, to ventilate that patient or, or oxygenate them. Uh, this might happen in uh, a uh, most likely a penetrating neck injury, be it uh, from a projectile like a bullet or um, uh, something sharp like a knife or a machete, or it could actually additionally happen in some situations from a, from a blunt injury. So those are, those are the things to think about. And then as we, we kind of think about what's around there, you really run the risk of um, having a, a pharyngoesophageal tear or, or pharyngoesophageal um, injury. And so kind of when we put this together in terms of a differential, some of those signs and symptoms would lead us down um, exploring a variety of those those different things that could happen just just by the number of structures that are in the area and the impact they have on on vital functions such as breathing, speaking, swallowing, uh, and and their their precarious spot in the neck between major blood vessels and 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 nerves. And as we transition to workup, um, if you're going to see the patient, what are the key features on physical exam and whatnot that you like to look for? Yeah. So, so workup is really interesting. So, you know, I think when we approach it as when you're going to see the patient, um, it turns out that trauma is very multidisciplinary, which, you know, in our case is great because an otolaryngologist isn't in the trauma bay every time a, a patient comes on in with laryngeal trauma. And, and as a result of that, um, you, you may not be there initially and may be called down. But in the, in the event that it's not an emergency, um, you go down and see the patient and really most importantly is, is your sense of what's going on as you walk in, it plays a huge role. So, you know, is the patient sitting up? Are they looking at you? Do they look like they're in distress? If you, if you see a patient tripoding or, 
or gasping for breath, you know, that's obviously going to change, change your approach quite a bit. Another thing you want to think about is when you introduce yourself, which, which obviously we all do, how does that patient respond? Do they, um, do they talk with a hoarse voice, a breathy voice? Um, do they have a pressed phonation? Can they get a sentence out without having to take a breath? So th- those are the things that we often overlook um, in our in our haste, right? We get called, you know, everyone's ears perk up. We're like, ooh, laryngeal trauma. There's some patient that got, you know, a baseball bat to the neck, and you're you're skipping down to the OR, you know, and down to the ER side to see what what's coming in that you can help with. But the reality is that some of those simple things are going to give you the most information. And so the, all this happens before you've you've laid your hand on the patient or, or taken a, a complete history, right? Um, and, and that's really important because I think in terms of understanding what's going on, getting a sense of their natural breathing pattern when you see them, are they comfortable and what does their voice sound like, that gives you a really good hint as to where you're going to go next and, and kind of focusing your, your physical exam on, on making some, you know, smart, smart choices moving ahead. So obviously you're going to do a complete head and neck physical exam. Um, and so here you're going to be specifically looking for, um, any lacerations in the, you know, and, and you might have some of this information if the patient's awake from, uh, what the, the mechanism of injury. And so was it something sharp, you know, did someone attack them with a bobby pin or, uh, was it like a blunt thing, like a baseball bat or something to the neck? Uh, and that gives you a, an understanding of, of what to look for. You, you want to actually, you know, put your hands on the neck and not just feel for crepitus, um, that, that subcutaneous emphysema that's going to give you a sense of that there's some air in, in the neck. But also, you want to feel that um, larynx kind of elevate and move anteriorly when the patient swallows. So you want to kind of hold, gently hold the larynx and have them swallow and see, is that really tender? Is there, is there an issue with that? You know, do I see anything that looks like it could be any kind of hematoma? And all, all of that information before you've got any, out any of, your, any of your toys, I think is really important to set the stage of, of what are you thinking and what are you looking at? Now, now, obviously, and this is all, you know, idealistic because this is a stable patient that you're seeing, you know, in the setting of an, an unstable patient, you know, obviously your, your decision and your treatment um, kind of comes, comes sooner in the, in the management. But, you know, this gives you your first sense of, of what to do. And in terms of flexible laryngoscopy, how do you think about using that in this setting? Yeah, that that is a great question. So um, although we're all skilled in, in flexible laryngoscopy, we, we need to consider the, um, the sit, our situational awareness. Understanding what the patient's situation is is important because, you know, if we're looking at a patient who is you know, clearly not very, uh, doesn't appear very stable, maybe has some air hunger or, uh, you know, concern for some kind of a, a mass in the neck or, or hematoma or something, then, then it's important to consider uh, what, what might happen if we rush a laryngoscopy. So, so the reality is that, that it, you know, a young resident running down to the ER, you know, um, excitedly with a, with a flex scope, you know, m- might actually precipitate more problems um, and that immediate moment, um, and so so a thoughtful decision needs to be made. If if the patient's stable, of course, it's an invaluable tool because it allows us to visualize the endolarynx, understand what the vocal fold mobility is. You know, is is there a fixation? You know, is there a vocal fold immobility? Is a arytenoid dislocated? Um, are there endolaryngeal 
um, lacerations? Is there airway patent? You know, is there edema, hematoma? A lot of those things you lose if the patient gets intubated or has another airway and you can't have the patient speak for you. With that said, you know, it probably needs to be done by one of the more experienced people in the room um, for, for twofold. One, one to make sure you're efficient in getting it done, but also having a patient cough or gag who's already got some crepitus, you, you don't want to see that develop into a pneumothorax. When you, when you consider all of these things, if a patient has a potential cricotracheal separation or something, it might be more appropriate uh, to do that flexible laryngoscopy in the operating room setting when you're getting prepared to do some kind of treatment options. That's really important. Um, and, that's, and that's where you decide, how are you going to work this airway up? And, you know, this is probably a, a good point, a, a good spot per se to, to fit that in and say, well, how are we working up that airway? And, and if you think that that airway is not stable, then, then some decisions need to be made. And, and um, one is, you know, what do we do about imaging? But, but also, like, can the patient go to the operating room? Do we need an alternative airway? Do we need an intubation? And so, so that conversation, at least in your head, needs to be happening. And you, you started to mention imaging there. What do you like to do for that? Yeah, so so imaging can be really, really invaluable in, in a laryngeal trauma case. So, you know, interestingly enough, um, a lot of these patients, not a lot, but just about all of them come in with any, any head and neck trauma, go through this kind of pan scan. And so, you know, generally speaking, that's going to be a CT scan with contrast. Um, but just like a lot of, of small structures that, that we might find in, say, say, like the temporal bone or sinuses, we really need high resolution to illustrate what's going on in, in the laryngotracheal complex. And, and that's because uh, if we look back to what we were saying earlier about the you know, slow ossification of that cartilage, it, it doesn't show up well um, at all the time in younger individuals. So noticing that fracture might be problematic. So I, I can tell you that more than once I've seen you know, a patient actually, you know, be said that they told that they didn't have any issues with their larynx only to find out when, when we were consulted for, um, a, a voice issue that, it, that in fact, there was a full longitudinal fracture of the, of the, um, thyroid cartilage, um, that had just been missed because it's so easy to, to oversee. So, you know, if at all possible, you know, as it turns out, many of the trauma centers will record the scopes in a very high uh, resolution, but then second to data storage situations only re- record them in the in the imaging systems at a lower resolution. So you really want to get as high resolution as you can of of the larynx itself to get a sense of what what that looks like. Because you can even oftentimes see what's going on with your not only your thyroid cartilage but your cricoid and your retinoids, and and that's really important because if you're seeing a, a cricoid fracture or specific fractures in the larynx, it helps you do some some operative planning. But imaging really isn't restricted only to understanding what's going on with the framework of the larynx. Um, swallow plays a huge role here because one of the the really devastating concerns is, is there a pharyngoesophageal tear or leak? So in this case, you're thinking about some kind of a swallow assessment. And and that leads us down the pathway of, a, of an esophagram. And so for pharyngoesophageal tears, you're generally going to start with a gastrographin swallow study. And that's because gastrographin is far less reactive in the neck uh, as compared to barium. Barium is highly reactive in the neck and can cause you know a significant trouble um, for patients and actually precipitate a new set of problems that that you nor the patient wanted to wanted to encounter. You know, along along that lines, the downsides to gastrographin is it doesn't quite 
uh, show up as well as barium is not as bright just due to its radio opacity. So, you know, if, if you do a gastrograph and swallow that appears to have no leak, it's really important to follow that up with a, with a barium sulfate so that you can understand what's going on. Uh, This minimizes the risk of any kind of barium induced mediastinitis and, and also allows you to fully illustrate what's going on. Now, you know, as we kind of get into the 2020s here, one of the great imaging modalities is actually a CT esophagram. So this is a little more tricky um, and, and a skilled radio, radiology tech and, and radio, radiologists can really help you with this. And in this case, what they do is, is while capturing a CT scan, they actually have the patient swallow the barium and do the esophagram at the same time. And, and the beauty of this is that now you're able to, to visualize the, the um, radio opaque material in the esophagus in a CT scan, it gives you really good resolution of what's going on. Now, as you might imagine, sometimes timing that can be tricky. And, and, you know, even in a, you know, relatively stable patient, we can get a CT um, with contrast or even a CTA, which allows us, you know, the CT angiogram is going to allow us to evaluate the large vessels in the neck. Um, and that can be done even in, 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 you know, moderately stable patients, but to kind of do some of these more nuanced exams, such as an esophagram or a, or a CT esophagram, you're, you're going to look for a patient who's probably not as acutely sick. And as we transition from workup to um, treatment, I just wanted to ask you briefly about the neck zones um, as it relates to head and neck trauma. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, the neck zones are, are important. As you, you can imagine, the larynx really resides in, in only one zone, but understanding that in terms of, of penetrating neck trauma is really important. So the neck is, is generally broken up into three zones, and um, they're kind of working from bottom to top. So so we first think about the lower neck zone one. And so in there, you're, you're looking down from um, below the cricoid cartilage down to uh, the mediastinum and the chest. And so you've got the carotids, the large art, the large arteries, the lungs, trachea, esophagus, uh, thoracic duct, and all, all those things are at risk. You move into zone two, which is, which is well known for its traditional historical need to be explored, um, for, for penetrating injuries. Um, and, and that's where our larynx ri- resides as well as, you know, there's a con- contribution of the esophagus there, the recurrent laryngeal nerves, um, vagus nerves, all kind of fit in that, in that, um, midline area and extends up to the, to the mandible. And so the, the third zone of the neck is kind of above that mandible. And, and that's where you have your vertebral arteries, your jug, your parotid and submandibular glands. Um, and that's, and that's an area that's harder to get to. So that's one of the reasons that was always been broken up is one of the places you're going to go to is, is, um, balloon angiography to treat it. But when we talk about laryngeal trauma, we've put ourselves squarely in zone two, um, be it for blunt or penetrating trauma. And in regards to laryngeal trauma, in terms of classification or grading systems, is there anything you like to use for that? Yeah, you know, years ago, and it's been added on, um, actually, I think they developed at UT Southwestern um, before, before moving on, was the Schaefer-Furman classification. And so th- this is a um, kind of a progressive classification um, that numbers from one to five. So just just like anything, you know, it kind of gives you a sense. It's a it's a great thing to have as you report it in a note or or call a call an upper level and say I have a grade two or a, um, a grade three injury. But but the reality is, we kind of go through. You'll see that you know, just like anything in, in life, there tends to be a little more more nuances than than are illustrated in a simple 
um, grading scale. But you know, for the purposes of a, of of something to work from, it's it's a good starting spot. And so, and so you know, if we start at stage one, we're talking about um, looking at the patient. There's no obvious fractures. Um, there might be a small hematoma inside the larynx in the laryngeal mucosa. And so that would be what's considered the most mild um, injury. You know, moving on, we'll get to stage two. So I, as you can imagine, this is a progressive stage. So, so in stage two, we have our hematoma or edema. And, and there might be small breaks in the mucosa with, with, uh, without cartilage exposure. So you might see some, some mucosal tissues explode your SLP or, um, you know, other tissues, but, but you haven't exposed any, any cartilage. You know, when you uh, take time to evaluate the CT scan, you'll find most likely a, a non-displaced fracture. But, but this is where things get interesting because you can envision that you might actually open a CT scan and find that you've got a fracture, but you don't have any tears. And so how that really fits in is where it gets a little more nuanced. But then moving on, you, you could have um, stage three. So stage three is um, as we progress. So you take that hematoma. It's now it's more, it's more widespread. So you have severe edema. You've got mucosal tears, cartilage explo- exposure under laryngoscopy evaluation. And then when you're talking about movement, and this, this goes into being able to assess the patient before they're, they're taken to the operating room, you're talking about um, vocal fold immobility or, or vocal fold fixation, which is important if you're, you're considering like a, a retinoid subluxation. Now, interestingly, uh, again, why, why I say this becomes more nuanced is you could actually have, you know, vocal fold immobility or reduced mobility without any any of these mucosal injuries. So, so that's an important um, clarification. Uh, moving on to stage four, as we kind of progress up. So now you're looking at all the things that we've already discussed with more than two sites in the larynx involved and more severe lacerations of the mucosa. So that would be stage four. And then ultimately stage five is total separation of the larynx from the, the trachea. So laryngotracheal separation is, is stage five. So, you know, traditionally that five stage classification system kind of gives you a starting point. But, but as I mentioned, you know, some of those things cross over and, and just like anything in life that it's, it's not, you know, all encompassing, but it's a great way to start kind of considering where you, you fall on those lines. In transitioning to treatment now, um, I think overarchingly we can break it down into conservative and surgical management. Can we just start with conservative or medical management? Which patients fit into that category and what that looks like? Yeah, this is great and, and a little challenging to kind of break up, but I, but I like the way that we're we're kind of dividing it up here. So if we, if we just start off and talk about conservative of management, you can envision that these are obviously not not the unstable patients. So the, these really fall into two different categories. So one would be the patient that ha- that probably has an isolated laryngeal injury. So you know, spinning back to where we started, this could be that patient who was, you know, pushing grandma's car out of the snow, slipped, hit the back of their neck on the hood, now is, has a hoarse voice. You see them in the, in the ED, they come to your clinic, you do a video stroboscopy or a flexible laryngoscopy. And, and in that exam, you find like a vocal fold hemorrhage or maybe minor reduction in vocal fold mobility. Um, in, in this case, you've done your CT scan and, and for the sake of discussion here, there's, there's no fracture. Okay. So clearly this person has an, an injury. And so, um, you know, going back, this would be our grade one. In this case, this is something or somebody you're, you're going to want to watch, you know? And so that person needs to be observed, you know, and, and this is really isolated. This option is really isolated to, 
to small soft tissue injuries like hematoma with an overarching um, stability to their larynx without any lacerations or laryngeal injuries of which you're worried about, you know, edema, laryngeal compromise, or, or uh, poor wound healing. It also opens kind of a, a controversial topic is, you know, a uh, single non-displaced fracture. So what, what might happen is you look in the, the um, CT scan and you get a nice fine cut and you're looking through and, and you scope the patient and they've got a hematoma, but they appear to have normal motion. But now, now you see just an isolated laryngeal fracture, or perhaps there isn't even a hematoma and you find an isolated laryngeal fracture. Like, what do you do? Well, you know, there's, there's an argument to be made and a very real one that it's more than adequate to just do observation in that patient. Now, you know, if, if their voice is not good, so if they're dysphonic and there's motion abnormalities, that, that might be a spot where you're going to say, hmm, you know, we might need to intervene here. But if, if their voice is normal and they don't have a hematoma, then you could watch them. If you see a hematoma and, and some voice abnormalities, but what appears to be normal motion, you know, again, you have a good position to say this might be a patient that, that I want to watch. Now, in general, I think all these patients should be admitted. So when you're, you're seeing that person that has clear signs of a, of a laryngeal trauma, so you either find a fracture with no other findings or you find edema, hematoma, um, or, or like a hemorrhage without a fracture, they really should be monitored and is inpatient for 24 hours just to make sure you're not missing any kind of other fracture or progressive injury, right? So if they have edema and swelling and they're, they're slowly getting compression of their nerve, they might end up with unilateral or bilateral vocal fold immobility. So these patients, you know, um, this is where clinical judgment plays a huge role. So, so as an inpatient, you might keep this patient on, uh, depending upon your institution and, and, concern level as, as a, as a step down patient with a continuous pulse ox monitoring, obviously keep them, them NPO. In some situations, you might be more concerned in terms of their edema level. And so you might want that patient moved into a, a higher level of care for closer observation. You're going to want to keep that head of bed elevated. This, this is, uh, seems silly, but it's often overlooked. And you want that head up so you can overall, um, reduce, reduce edema. And then you need an airway plan, and, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But but you know, do you need you know is this so severe that you're thinking you need a trait kit at bedside? If if that's what you're thinking, then then maybe you know maybe you should slide that patient into potential surgical management, even if it's just for a direct laryngoscopy. Um, but you do need to be thinking about you know airway adjuncts and how you know is this patient intubatable. Could you intubate the patient at the bedside? Could you use um, Heliox? What what would be your your temporizing solutions so that you know if you know you're not you're not doing some kind of emergent airway at the bedside because that's that's not good for anyone. And and then there's this consideration for voice rest, and I, and I always found this interesting because as really situational dependent. If you're if you're a public speaker and you come in and you got a vocal fold hemorrhage, uh, yeah, you're on on voice rest, but. You know, if maybe you have some small decrease in, in vocal fold mobility, you know, I, the, the literature really doesn't say if you should be on complete voice rest or not. So that that's going to be uh, largely left up to each each of those individual situations. And, and really, like, again, clinical judgment, you, you know, without mucosal tears, I, th- I think, you know, moderate voice use is OK. I mean, the argument, again, is if we're talking about vocal fold hemorrhage, those patients are often kept on, on voice rest. So we, we don't worsen their voice. Um, but maybe mild decrease in mobility, um, it might be OK to continue to have them 
them speaking. Um, and then, and then other treatments that you're going to provide these patients in almost all cases, um, and, and very few exceptions, you're going to be giving these patients corticosteroids. And the reason is, is to reduce the edema. So, so these injuries, um, one of the feared complications is that loss of the airway. So, so probably the best example of that is in an inhalation injury, right? So we, th- this is classically described as, you know, someone has a heat inhalation injury, gets scoped, there's some soot in the nose, soot in the airway, some edema, but it's not bad. And then, you know, six hours later, there's no airway, no one can get it. It's an emergency airway situation. And so all laryngeal trauma obviously doesn't progress that way, but you know, the patient for which there's no um, vessel injury or indication for surgery, and you're going to watch conservatively, the steroids play a number of roles. So we, we know they play a role in, in altering wound healing and in an optimal fashion in the, in the laryngotracheal complex, but, but also they help reduce any of that, that edema. You know, there's this question of antibiotics. Well, if there's really no injury, no, no fracture, you know, and there's plus minus role for, for giving a patient a broad spectrum antibiotics as we're, as we're learning more in medicine and more and more information comes out, there's, there's obviously risks to being on antibiotics. So, so in the case of, of no crepitus, um, no fracture and, and, uh, hemorrhage, then probably no antibiotics. But if you're talking about observing a non-displaced fracture, you could make an argument potentially for, for an antibiotic in, in in the right patient, and then finally, everyone's favorite topic is is anti reflux medications, which kind of get thrown at everything. And I I think um, probably the best data on on this would be looking at at infants with that that have supraglottic collapse, and and uh, th- those infants are found to have improved outcomes with with anti reflux meds, and we and we know that that they can be useful in, in airway issues. So I think that if you think there's any mucosal disruption or or the patient is symptomatic from everything, anti-reflux meds won't hurt, but I, I certainly would consider not sending patients home on months and months of them um, without having underlying, unless they have underlying reflux. So, you know, the, the other thing that, that gets observed and, you know, kind of gets classified under the umbrella of, of laryngeal trauma is, you know, if we don't see a fracture and you know, maybe there's no other injury, but there's some air in the neck and the only finding on physical exam was crepitus, then, then those patients, I, I tend to, you know, I tend to watch, keep them NPO, um, plus or minus on, on all the medications. Um, generally, you give them steroids to help any, any local inflammation from, from the air in, in the neck. But again, with, a, with a, a very low threshold to kind of pursue something, but, but that's a more complicated, you know, a little off topic because those patients might have an injury in their pharynx or something. And that, and that, and that has, you know, just let a bunch of air in. So, uh, but, but those are really the extent of patients that you can just completely manage and in a conservative observation type, type manner. Yeah. And just transition. I mean, obviously with surgical management, there's a number of different things we could talk about, but could you touch on just kind of the key highlights surrounding, you know, when do we operate and what does that typically look like? Yeah, of course. So, um, surgical management, I, th- I think really takes a couple of different forms. So, you know, I think one of the things to consider is, is the art of the airway, right? So, so it's not always just find and fix. Um, we'll get to that. That's a, that's a different situation, but one of them is the uncertain airway. So if we, if we scroll back to what we were talking about earlier and we said, well, you know, what is the status of the airway? Um, you, you know, the otolaryngologist can play a key role in establishing and safely establishing the airway. 
And and so this might involve, which which I find very helpful, is is really close communication with anesthesia, saying, hey, you know, we did this the CT scan, the CTA. It looks like the vessels are intact, but the patient is clearly short of breath. There looks like flexible laryngoscopy revealed. There's some mucosal um, mucosal damage here. We need to be careful with this airway. And so you're going to take that airway to the operating room. And and this is where, you know, communication and your multidisciplinary team and, and your skill really comes in. Because um, what you don't want to do is be saying, okay, yeah, well, you know, this person's getting like a fiber optic intubation and someone's trying to shove a tube through from above and the patient's coughing and they're causing a laryngotracheal separation or doing significant more damage to the endolarynx, that's not good for anyone. Um, it's going to complicate your repair and it's also going to going to make the overall situation worse. So so you have a couple of different approaches. If, if you're not so concerned about the airway and you're, and you're thinking more along the lines of mucosal tears and injury, this might be an opportunity where you yourself intubate with a, with a small tube you do the intubation to make sure that you're not damaging any of the endolaryngeal structures. It might also be a time in a more severe injury where you, you have that discussion with, with the patient you know, or their family and the anesthesia team up front and say, you know, this is a patient who's probably should just get the awake trach up front. This way we're not instrumenting the larynx. We're, we're careful about doing this. You might consider doing a um, rigid bronch so that you cross any potential um, laryngotracheal separation so that you can ventilate into the lungs. And, and this kind of approach gives you a lot of options. It lets you see the larynx before it's been further instrumented and understand what's going on. So, you know, in terms of, you know, what do we have to do today? I think the, the, that, that kind of approach, you're going to really focus on those patients that have sh- showed up and show that they're not great candidates to wait. So penetrating neck trauma even without CTA findings, um, often warrants a, a repair that same day. And, and that's your opportunity as the airway expert in the hospital to step in and say, probably the, you know, recommend and work with your you know, multidisciplinary team to best secure the airway in the safest manner possible. Um, so you can, you know, make the next step in the, in the repair. Um, and I think that's uh, like, those are the obvious patients. In fact, you know, as an otolaryngologist, m- many will find that they get called to the operating room after general surgery has, or trauma surgery has explored the neck because the patient showed up with a light bulb sticking out of their neck because someone jabbed them in the neck with it. And so obviously somebody went in there to control some bleeding and then you show up and then, you know, the patient's already got a breathing tube in. Downsides in that situation is uh, you don't know what the airway looked like before the patient was intubated. You don't know what the vocal fold mobility was, and so you're left a little bit um, in the dark on that. But you know that being said, um, those are the patients that kind of you know declare their own situation as you as you get back there. And and even even nowadays um, in in 2020, a lot of those patients have a CTA and a CT scan that you can review, and you just build off of what you get, right? We we live in a world where we're not in a silo, and and those patients get treated by multiple people. So, regardless if it was the perfect idea or not, the patient's been intubated, or somebody put a crike in, or something happened, and you're coming in, you're going to kind of just use that as your foundation and, and build from there. So, so. That's kind of the the urgent patient, and this is a great spot to kind of transition into like planning an open reduction and repair because one of two things is is really going to happen. So, 
either, you know, um, you're going to get called in to either help do the intubation and laryngeal evaluation followed by a repair, or you're going to come upon a patient who's intubated and trauma surgery wants your help. Or probably the most common, you know, I think is a patient who's been stabilized in the ICU and you have noticed some fractures on a CT scan and now you're planning your approach. So, so this again, um, is, is really broad, but I think we can kind of break it down into some simple things and then kind of work our way up from there. So most importantly, when we think about long-term outcomes is we're really trying to preserve airway function and voice function. So if we see a bunch of mucosal lacerations or damages, these need to be repaired. And so you're going to think about what your individual skill set and tools are and make, um, you know, and, and the extent of the injury and make your decisions um, from there. So, you know, if you look at a patient who has some minor, a minor laceration, you've got a great, you know, equipment set up and you have your endolaryngeal instruments, and you think you can repair it endolaryngeally and there's no other issues you need to address, by all means, that's a great approach. More extensive injuries to the mucosa of the larynx might require a midline thyrotomy or an infrahyroid a laryngotomy. And, and that, that allows you kind of a more easier approach to repair those mucosal injuries, you know, provided that you're able to get everything back together and, and, and properly uh, put in position. Because ultimately what we want to do is prevent long-term scarring, you know, um, laryngotracheal stenosis. And so th- these will let us do that. There are plenty of other things that will come up. And so we're still on the endo- endolarynx and, and you might need to do an arytenoid repositioning maneuver in the uncommon scenario of an arytenoid dislocation. Um, and then and then you have to think about, uh, quote unquote, uh, stenting or keels to the to the airway. So a lot of these endolaryngeal repairs, you guess, are going to require an alternative airway. So that patient probably has a tracheotomy or, or a T-tube um, for, for a period of time. And that T-tube might extend through the cords or not. So if you've gone in and done your repair, you need to decide how you're going to, you know, maintain the formation and, and laryngeal framework. So there's a lot of options there. And, and in and of itself, that uh, laryngotracheal repair, we could we could go on for, for hours to my happiness to, to discuss that. But, you know, the reality is you could use a Montgomery laryngeal stent. You could put a T-tube through the framework for stabilization. You could use a Gore-Tex or Silastic keel to maintain the, the position of the anterior commissure. All those, all those are options. And I think, you know, for the purposes of, of our discussion today, that just gives you some sense of, of how you might repair those. And all that is kind of your, your um, endolaryngeal issues. And so, you know, moving outside of that, I, I think we, we really need to mention, what do we do about the framework? Well, so framework surgery is great, right? So we can easily go into the neck and, and, and repair the thyroid cartilage or cricoid cartilage, um, but, but it does pose some unique issues. So A, the anatomy can be a little bit, you know, tricky or complex to fit or adequately fit, fit plates to or wires. And so, and so this goes into, well, how do you fixate it? Well, you know, you have a number of options. And again, a lot of this is left to A, what's available in your facility, B, how adept and nimble are you with your equipment? And, you know, what are you most comfortable with? So the full range of options would be, you know, um, just using sutures to try to suture things back together, like large proline sutures to suture back together to cricoid or laryngeal cartilage. As you can imagine, you know, because they're not um, three-dimensionally um, fixated, it's easier for them to slide and sutures are slippery. So some people use wires and try to wire it together. But again, that, that leaves you with those same issues. And, and you can cheese wire through 
the soft cartilage in younger individuals. So there's a great role for mini plates and mini plates have been used elsewhere in the mid face and, and, you know, um, neurosurgery and we're really adept as otolaryngologists at the use of mini plates, you know, yet those pose in and of themselves some issues. And so those issues generally are, well, how do I get the screws to stay in the cartilage? And that can be a frustrating experience for, for a young resident or faculty to say the least. And so, you know, I, I advocate for really a hybrid approach. And so I, I like to take a mini plate and then, you know, instead of putting a screw through the individual holes, you can um, use a, either a wire or you could use a suture or my favorite is they make actually sutures that have wire on the end of them. And you can, put that through. And so now you're wiring the plate into, into position. It gives you that 3d stability. And so, you know, if you're just looking at repairing laryngeal framework and it's stable and there's not much edema, you don't necessarily have to have an alternative airway, um, trach or what, what have you, but, um, that those are some really good options. And then that, that kind of addresses any of the laryngeal framework issues. And as you can imagine, the cricoid, the thyroid cartilage and the pattern of which, which plate you use are, have to be adapted to the individual situation, but you know that's kind of your approach there. And then finally, is is penetrating trauma with concern for recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. This is always tricky because a lot of times in these situations you haven't had a chance to do any kind of laryngeal EMG. So one of the things that might happen is if you come upon a patient who was otherwise stable and had a recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, seems to be out on your flexible endoscopy. Well, is that because of the patient was intubated for some other procedure or because of edema? You know, then then you'd have to consider the role for laryngeal EMG to understand that. If it's a penetrating trauma and you're there um, and you had a chance to scope the patient and saw that it was out, then then there's a role. Why don't you go find the nerve? The, the risk always, though, is if you're digging around looking for the nerve, are you going to be causing... Um, m- more injuries. So if it's not an apparent, you know, machete to the neck injury, a lot of times, you know, as it turns out, as a knife passes through uh, your your neck tissues, it tends just to push many of them out of the way and can often preserve that. So, so sometimes the best thing is to wait. We're really good at, at managing vocal fold immobility. And so, and so, you know, if it's obviously cut, you can do a primary reanastomosis. Um, then, you know, people might consider like an ANSTA anastomosis, but in a lot of those cases, you will have wanted to understand better the, the nerve function and considered laryngeal EMG or, or observation evaluation for a little bit before you're diving into the, the shallow end of the pool. And then, um, these patients, obviously, you know, the, what, what happens to them is, is dependent, you know, in terms of where do they go, the floor, the ward, the ICU is depending upon the, the intervention that, that you make, you know, a simple incision and framework repair of a, a single laryngeal fracture with no airway stuff could potentially be observed with, with steroids overnight and reflux meds. And if you've made an incision, then like antibiotics, so, but, you know, more complex, uh, intervention where you've got an alternative airway or a keel or a, tr- or a T-tube or something is going to require additional management in the, in the ICU. And what are the c- kind of complications you want to be mindful of when operating on these patients? Yeah. So, you know, I think complications are, are the biggest concern and it's kind of what drives our, our early treatment. So at the end of the day, as much as I'd like to say the role of the larynx is for me and you to have these wonderful talks on, on, on podcasts, but the reality is it's so that we can breathe. Yeah, so that we can breathe, so we can have these talks, obviously. So, you know, we got to make sure the airway is fine. So so we worry about things like airway stenosis, laryngotracheal stenosis, uh, subglottic stenosis, um, laryngeal stenosis. All those things are things that we, we 
worry about and doing surgery to prevent. Hence the reason that we're putting keels in and T-tubes and, and endoscopic evaluations and repairing t- um, tears. And then, and then we want to preserve the voice. And so we have to think about vocal fold immobility. And focal fold immobility could be a complication, as we talked about, from the type of injury or, or a variety of other issues. And so um, that the, the management of that is, is quite broad. And, and uh, you know, that, that topic's um, being covered in, in other, other multiple um, podcasts because of its, its uh, breadth. But it involves medialization procedures, reinnervation procedures, um, depending upon that, that underlying pathophysiology. And also, you know, it has a temporal relationship to the injury because if we think it's edema related um, or compressive injury, that that might take months and months and months to come back. Uh, so, so we have to think about that. And then, you know, we really want the patient to sound normal. And so, walking around horse is problematic for for any number of reasons. But you know, that might be from scarring from an endolaryngeal injury. It could be you know, ultimate focal fold immobility, maladapted vocal patterns afterwards in which, you know, you're going to talk about voice therapy. And then, you know, with any other healing, you want to talk about granulomas and infections. So, so granulomas are common in the airway because, you know, you got a lot of different tissue and bugs there that cause uh, irritation. And so, you know, getting ahead of uh, granulation tissue is important, right? If you come in and and those granulomas can be large and actually um, create airway issues. So those can be treated with inhalation steroids or uh, even in-office KTP lasers as options. Um, so those uh, those are some of the more common things to think about in terms of com- complications would be, you know, voice issues, airway stenosis, vocal fold immobility, hopefully which you didn't cause during any of your repairs, um, granuloma formation. And, and, you know, it goes without saying that anytime we make an incision in the neck or there's an injury, you, you worry about infection though. Um, the chondritis itself for primary primary cartilage in, infections are, are thankfully relatively rare um, based on our current treatment outcomes. And when we think about outcomes and follow-up and whatnot, I, I know it'll depend a bit about whether or not the patient had conservative versus surgical management, but how do you like to follow these patients up? Yeah, this is this is a great question. I think, you know, spinning back to our, you know, observation patients. So if it was just a hemorrhage, I think overnight ops and then a good close follow-up to make sure it's it's resolving with some voice rest would be ideal. Um, the non-displaced fracture that, that, that otherwise has no complaints or no mucosal injuries, you're going to do a similar treatment plan for that patient. Um, and in that patient, particularly if this was a contact sports induced injury, they, they need to not be doing contract sports. If this person you know, is like a deep sea diver or something like they need to be not doing those things, which could potentiate the problem. Um, and, and you're going to see them back in, the, in a couple of weeks. Now, if the patient was admitted with sole crepitus and you couldn't find any injury or laceration or anything, well, then you need to make sure that the trajectory of their crep- crepitus is resolving. They need to be not active. And you're again, going to follow those patients fairly closely um, after they've been observed for improvement. You know, if you've done surgery, the the reality is like a small minor repair to like laryngeal framework might only require, you know, an overnight observation um, uh, after which they can they can leave. Um, There are reports of people being able to do just a simple repair of a larynx and and send the patient on the same day. But most most people would watch them overnight, make sure they're doing fine a day, maybe two and and get them uh, set for follow up. Um, But once you've started to do surgery, you need to consider, you know, um, you know, do I need to worry about airway compromise? Is there, are there, are there other issues that, that I need to think about? So, 
you know, a patient who's had a tracheotomy and has maybe a T-tube or a keel, then you get to start deciding, okay, well, you know, is that patient safe to go home? Does that, you know, patient have the right care plan? Do they know how to manage a trach? Do, the, do they and their family know how to manage a T-tube? Are they safe to do that? What's, what's going to be the next step? Because if you've done an alternative airway, you're not done because you know that you need to go back and get them back to a normal neck, a normal airway, um, and watch those, those tissues heal. So, you know, I think really understanding that these patients are, are, kind of going to be with you until you can make sure that that they are better is, is really important. So, you know, if even if you think it's just, you know, edema causing a temporary vocal fold immobility, you need to follow that patient until that either resolves or or you need to intervene. And that, and that could take many, many months. Um, you know, obviously, you don't want to leave that patient with no intervention. If they're hoarse with immobility, you can do, you know, some form of medialization, temporary procedure. But, you know, you, you want to kind of follow their their injury as 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 it pertains to, to what you see in there. So I think, you know, I guess that's probably a little more of a roundabout answer than we had hoped for, but the reality is you're going to kind of follow what, what you got involved with. You know, if you did a bunch of endolaryngeal suturing, or you put back together, you know, the larynx via a midline thyrotomy, you're actually going to want to consider, am I going to need to go back to the operating room to remove my keel or, or stent or, or um, T-tube? Am I going to do a second procedure in which I do additional repair or inject some steroids to help reduce any healing issues? Um, and so those considerations need to be discussed, you know, both with your operative team and the patient as, as you kind of approach them. So while it seems really kind of complex and in-depth, I, I, I think the beauty of laryngeal trauma is a lot of it you know, kind of just develops on its own and tells you kind of what we're going to need to do, right? So is, do I, when you want to think about this in summary, hey, I'm, I'm seeing a patient. Does this patient need something right now? I mean, that's the general concept, right? Am I going to be diving headfirst in? Do I need to do something right now? Is this patient an acute problem? No. Okay. So they're not an acute problem. All right. So they're not an acute problem. You know, what do I have to do? What are my problems? What do I have to address them? And then as you kind of proceed down that pathway, each one of those is going to tell you how to follow it up, what to worry about next. And so that's the really nice thing is, is kind of the natural evolution of treating laryngeal trauma as it kind of helps direct you to your next step. So, you know, for me, my ears always perk up a little bit when, when a resident calls me and say, hey, I got a little, uh, I got a little laryngeal trauma for you. And so it's something that, that I like. And I think that it is uh, a little bit makes a lot of otolaryngologists and residents very apprehensive when they first see because it can be you know, uh, really concerning. But when you break it down into this kind of simple approach, I think that the otolaryngologist, you know, is well-trained to handle these and really ensure optimal outcomes for patients. Well, awesome, Dr. Deanne. Is there anything before I transition to the summary portion of the podcast, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think this is a a great discussion. And I hope that I was able to help um, some people out in terms of their approach and thinking about um, laryngeal trauma. Yeah. Well, Um, I'll transition to our summary portion now. Um, So laryngeal trauma is a rare but potentially life-threatening form of head and neck trauma. can occur in a wide variety of settings. Um, Oftentimes it's blunt trauma, but rarely can also be penetrating trauma like gunshot wounds or uh, stabbings, for instance. Patients symptomatically will present with dysphonia, sometimes sensation of subcutaneous emphysema or air in the neck, uh, dysphagia, cough, strider, some shortness of breath, hemoptysis. They'll might experience some cervicalgia or neck pain. Um, 
And when you're working the, up the patient, or you're seeing them for the first time, obviously the primary consideration should be establishing a safe, safe airway, and especially in a patient with neck trauma, having a stable cervical spine, um, things you want to be mindful of before seeing the patient. But otherwise, doing a complete um, history and physical exam is, is very important, being mindful of how the patient is able to talk to you. Are they short of breath, um, having difficulty to breathe, that, that sort of thing? Flexible laryngoscopy is a key component of the physical exam, of course, um, should be done by an experienced person, just especially in the patient with more significant laryngeal trauma. You don't want to exacerbate an acute airway decline. A CT imaging of the neck is key in terms of not only evaluating the, the injury, but also preoperative planning. And then if you're concerned about esophageal injury, you want to start with an esophagram with gastrograph and opposed to barium just to avoid the barium sulfate-induced metastinitis. Talked a little bit about uh, neck zones. Laryngeal trauma is obviously in the second zone of the neck. And in terms of penetrating trauma, that's classically considered the must um, explore zone of the neck. Then touched on different uh, management, conservative versus surgical management. Conservative management often be employed for smaller injuries, such as a Schaefer-Furman grade one injury, but the rest um, typically involving some sort of, of intervention. And then um, postoperatively, things to be very mindful of is ongoing voice issues and um, the potential for st- stenosis of the airway, as well as vocal fold immobility and development of granulation tissue. I'll transition now to the questions portion of the podcast, where I'll ask a question, pause for a couple seconds, allow you to think about the answer, and then I'll give you the correct answer. So first question of the episode, how does age factor into the injury patterns commonly observed in laryngeal trauma? So in laryngeal trauma, the younger the patient, the more elastic the cartilage, and therefore laryngeal fractures are very uncommon in kids and more common as patients age um, as the cartilage ossifies. And moreover, it's important to remember that the larynx sits higher in kids, especially very young kids, such as toddlers or preschool age, kindergarten, that sort of thing. And and so that the airway can actually have some protection um, just from by sitting higher in the neck. Uh, next question, if concerned about a concomitant esophageal injury, what study should you order? Uh, and do you want contrast or what kind of contrast do you want to use? Correct study in this setting is esophagram with gastrographin. Um, reason being you want to do that prior to um, using barium just to avoid the barium sulfate-induced mediastinitis that can occur in the setting of a true esophageal injury. Third question, how are zones of the neck broken down when thinking about head and neck trauma? So zones of the neck can be broken down in three uh, categories, starting from bottom, moving to the top. Um, First first zone of the neck is below um, the cricoid cartilage, lower neck. Uh, In this zone, you've got the carotid, vertebral, and subclavian arteries, the lung, tracheoesophagus, um, thoracic duct and uh, other structures in that area. The second zone of the neck is kind of the mid portion. It extends from the cricoid all the way up to the mandible. Um, this is where the context of laryngeal trauma, the larynx obviously, obviously sits. Also have, you know, your that uh, associated portion of the esophagus as well as nerves for current laryngeal nerve, ansa, uh, vagus nerves. And traditionally in the setting of penetrating trauma, this is the zone you'll, that requires mandatory exploration, although that has changed a bit over time. And last zone is um, the upper neck above the mandible, angle of the mandible, and 
the co contents of the carotid vertebral arteries, jugular veins, parotid submandibular glands, and uh, cranial nerves. Last question of the episode, what is the feared postoperative complication of concern in surgically managed lingotracheal trauma? Feared complication is supraglottic, glottic, or subglottic, or even tracheal stenosis um, that can be managed by serial dilations, resections, and anastomosis, or even reconstruction, depending on the severity. Well, that'll wrap things up for today. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.